Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. My name's Rick. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Rick. Bob, alcoholic. What, what I'd like to do uh, before we start is I just want to read a, a few sentences from uh, the forward to the first edition. It doesn't matter if you follow it or not. I, I'm not going to read much of it. It says, this is the forward as it appeared in the first printing of the first edition in 1939. So this is what they wanted to tell us. It says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. We've recovered. We're not recovering. We recovered from, we're no longer seemingly hopeless. Now, here's the point. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. So that's why they wrote this. They're going to show us precisely how they have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Okay, so we're going to go through this line by line and through chapter 5, which will begin on page 58, and we're going to try and see what they wrote. It's not important to find out what Bob or Rick think, okay? What we're going to do is try and get at what they wrote and what they're trying to tell us. Now, None of this is written from theory. This is all written from their collective experiences of what worked, the first hundred people. Okay? They hammered out these ideas over the first probably three years of being together. And I just want to say something about the difference between theory and experience, because it's really paramount. It, you know, give me an example. I was, I was watching a video years ago when I first came into the program of a guy, his name was Arthur Young, and he had invented the helicopter, and he was talking about... Uh, they had theories of how the helicopter should fly. He was an inventor. He was an old man when this was, when this was aired. He was probably in his mid-80s or so when, when this happened. And, and he was being interviewed, and he said they had theories of how the helicopter should fly. And, and this was typical when they would have an invention. He said their theories were always based in logic. Okay? So then they would take and build a model of the theory and fly it to see if it worked the way they thought it would. He said... Often, the model didn't obey their theories. In other words, it didn't work the way they thought. But they didn't say that the experience was wrong and their theories were right. They adapted their theories to the experience. Now, any reasonable mind would do that, wouldn't they? Not me. You know what I was doing all my life? I was trying to get the world to adapt to my theories, see? And I was pushing and shoving and trying to force solutions and things to problems, and it wasn't working. And that's literally how I ended up in Alcoholics Anonymous in the first place. So what we're going to look at is their experiences, not the theories. Much of what we're going to read may not make sense, but I can guarantee you one thing. If you'll try this, if you haven't done it, if you will take the action as we're going through this process in the next couple of days here, tonight and tomorrow, you'll have your own experience. It will induce the experience. And that's what we're trying for here, is trying to have the experience. I've had lots of theories 
that made sense to me and were very logical, but they didn't work. And when I got sober, I thought, well, I just got to work it harder. Then I poured more energy into working something that wasn't working, and guess what? It got worse. Never did it occur to me to let go. Why? Because it made sense to me, see? And that's the problem that I faced. This logical mind, I couldn't seem to get out of my logical mind. That's, this is the problem I had trying to grasp an idea of God also. It just eluded me. I had to start to let the experience teach me, not my theories. So uh, I think that's a big deal when we read the beginning of that. Uh, uh, it illustrates a number of things. So that's what we're looking for. What do you think? You want to start? Well, I had some pretty good theories about uh, what we're told culturally that if you have a lot of money and if you have a nice house and you have a Mercedes and if you have a, uh, a trophy girlfriend who's a lot younger and really pretty uh, and you'll have a big screen TV and you can sit in your house and just be as happy as can be. And you know what? I did that. It was the most miserable time I've ever had in my life. I hated everything. Couldn't stand it. But I'm happy to say that because of this, I have a lot less money. I don't have a Mercedes anymore. I don't have the house anymore. And the girlfriend is happily married to somebody else. And my life is wonderful. <laughs> my life is wonderful. That stuff just did not work. See, I, I like to kid Bob. He got to the top of the ladder and found out it was against the wrong wall. <laughs> and it, it's just the, the experience that I have had with this material. There's a lot of material in the book, and I, I strongly urge you to read from the beginning of the book about how we got here and what this seemingly hopeless state of mind and body is all about. But I have found, I started to, I went to a couple of workshops. Rick's been doing these longer than I have, and I went to a couple of workshops that he was doing with another gentleman. And uh, I started to get a little bit of an inkling. And how this happened, I don't know, but he asked me if I would do one. This was about 10 years ago. He asked me if I'd sit in because the other guy couldn't make it. And I had an opportunity to sit in and do this stuff. Now, I was thinking about it. I was going to the workshop, and I was thinking about all these great things that we, that we talked about here. And uh, I finally, when, uh, when I was asked to participate, I thought, well, I haven't really been writing anything down. I've just been sort of thinking about it a lot. And, uh, theory. I've got a theory, theory about, about it. it. And if I'm going to sit up in front and tell people to write, maybe I should write something before I start telling other people to write. So I wrote some inventory, and i got to tell you, wham, I've had that experience ever since. It's just, and it's, uh, we were talking earlier about uh, I'm somewhat of a nicer fellow than I used to be. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but whatever it is, this, my life is, is here. And inventory is so, so, so important. It's the reason we're ranting about the fourth step is because inventory is so important. Yeah, and Bob is kind of a, a different sort of guy. He was, uh, I'll tell you something that's kind of interesting about him. He, was, he came into his first AA meeting. At his first AA meeting, Bob got a medallion for 23 years sober. He was an instant old-timer. First AA meeting. He'd been sober for 23 years. That was the experience he was talking about, how he had achieved all kinds of things and was unhappy. I was a dry drunk for 23 years. I had an experience that caused me to stop drinking, and the compulsion to drink was removed. 
And I thought AA was where you guys went because you wanted to learn how to not drink anymore, and I was not drinking anymore, so I didn't bother to come to AA. Twenty-three years later, I followed my son to a meeting. He was getting a medallion. I followed him to a meeting. And I met Lenny, who's been my sponsor for the last 17 years, and uh, he dragged me around to some stuff, and I noticed that uh, as I'm going around trying to be helpful to other people, I'm feeling a little better, and life's getting a little better, and... I'm not so concerned about having a lot of money anymore, and one thing led to another, and here we are. But I owe it to this, absolutely owe it to this. So why, why don't we, uh, and, and here, I wanna, I, I'd like to say that if you have some questions, I would say, ask them. Let's get some clarity on what the material is saying, okay? If you're confused or we're talking, we're going to do this slowly, and we've done this long enough, so we've got some pretty good ideas of where the questions are, and we'll cover it fairly well. But if you've got some questions you want to ask, ask them. What I would like to not do is argue about whether the book is accurate, okay? Because that's really counterproductive. I, I've been doing this a long time at, at the Union Gospel Mission in St. Paul, and these guys, the treatment program... And they used to gang up on me 20 years ago. You know, I, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, they'd be arguing about whether the ideas were accurate or not. I, it, we, it's really counterproductive to do that. Uh, let's make an assumption here that these guys who wrote this book knew what they were talking about. Well, it's a very simple reason why it's accurate, because it's their experience. Yeah. They're writing down what happened to them, so there's no conjecture here. I'm just simply saying, when they wrote the book, they're telling us what happened to them. Yeah. So. Okay. But I encourage you to ask if you, if you want to get some clarity on something. It's really, I think, extremely important to get clear about what they're talking about here and not... So, but we'll cover it. We'll cover it pretty well. So, page 58. Does anybody need a book, by the way? I've got a few books up here if you want to... Here. Yeah, it's very helpful to follow along with the reading. Okay, let's, uh, let's take a look on page 58. Chapter 5 is titled, How It Works, so this is How It Works. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. You know, Bill was asked by Chuck C. why they wrote rarely instead of never have we seen a person fail. It came out in Chuck's book, A New Pair of Glasses, and, uh, or, in, or maybe one of his talks, I, I think maybe both. But uh, Chuck said that, he asked him that question, why don't you write never, and Bill told him, there's always some drunk who will prove you wrong. If you say never, I'm going to do everything you did and failed just to prove you wrong. Isn't that insane? I'm going to do everything you AA guys say, because you say never will a guy fail, I'll do it and fail just to prove you wrong. And that was an actual experience, apparently, that he had. So they wrote rarely so he could even bring that lunatic in. No, it's we, true. Yeah. We have a guy in our home group who did exactly that, and he talked about it after about five years of hanging yeah. around and being an AA, and of course it worked. You know, it was, He came in with, with resentments against his family. Against his mother and his oh. brother. And he knew he was going to do exactly what AA said to do, and he was going to fail. He knew it wasn't going to work. He heard us talking about inventory a lot in our group, and he says, that ain't going to work for me. So then he decided to try it just to prove that it wouldn't work because he had this case built and it was airtight, see, against him. And he wrote it and it actually worked. It worked and he didn't want it to work. So that's how effective this is if you'll try it. 
Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. Okay, this, this, this was a point where I made some mistakes. I, I heard this as those who don't recover are men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. You know how I heard that? Honest with everybody else. Okay? And then I set out to become rigorously, rigidly honest with everybody else. And I stopped stealing because I'd been a thief. I stopped lying. So what are we talking about? What they're talking about here as you get into this, as you'll see it, we're talking about self-deception, how I lie to myself. Now, I, if you'd have said this to me early on, I'd have said, you're crazy. I don't lie to myself. I knew I was dishonest with others, but I certainly tell myself the truth. See, I believe that with all my being. Self-deception. Now, you might say, well, I don't have self-deception. And I'd say, how do you know? Well, how do you know? Isn't self-deception the guy who's got it doesn't know he's got it? You don't know you got it till you get past it and then look back on a situation. You ever been wrong when you were sure you were right? I'll give you an example. I was drinking with a guy in my living room when I was about 18, 19 years old, just me and him. And we got drunk that night, and I just met him that day, and the next morning, he's gone and my money's gone. He stole my money. So I called up people who I thought knew him, found out he was just an acquaintance. He just kind of blew in and blew out, see, with my money. So I slammed him to everybody that I could find that knew him in any way. A couple of months went by. I found my money. I hid it when I was drunk because I was afraid he'd steal my money, see, because I knew I passed out all the time, see, you know. I black out and that sort of thing. So here it is. I'm clearly wrong, and I would have bet anything I was right. Okay? So now, have you ever had an experience like that? Then let's think it through a little further. How about this? How many things could I be wrong about right now and I just haven't found out yet? Would you like to think about that? I could be living under the illusion that I'm right about a lot of things and I just haven't come to the awareness yet that I'm wrong. I could be living under the illusion that people like me and they don't. I could be living under the illusion that people don't like me and they do. I had an experience with that when I was about 12 years sober with a guy that I thought didn't like me and I found out 12, 10, 12 years later that he did like me and it shocked me. Every time I'd see him, he'd walk past me. He, I'd say hello to him, he'd just keep going. He didn't acknowledge me, nothing. That went on for 10 years. And then one day I was asked to speak at a meeting and I went to the meeting and I did this talk and I was talking to the guy who invited me after, and I says, well, Todd's here. He says, yeah. He's, you know. I says, you know, I don't think, he doesn't like me. I don't think he likes me. He says, what are you talking about? I said, and I told him. He walks past me. He doesn't acknowledge me. He doesn't say hello when I say hello to him. You know what he said to me? Michael says to me, don't you know? I said, what are you talking about? He's got diabetes and some other illness where his eyesight is real bad and he can't hear. Huh. I went for 10 years thinking this guy... Then he went even further. He says, Todd's the one who asked me to get you to speak at the meeting tonight. I thought, what a fool I've been, see? Here it was. I was living under the illusion he didn't like me, and he did. Amazing. There can be a lot of this sort of thing inside of us, and we're not aware of it, see? 
So what I would suggest, we challenge what we believe. And we're going to get into this. this is a, they're going to talk about this. But this is the kind of honesty that we're talking about. Anybody can be honest with others. But can I start to spot my self-deceptions? You can if you learn to ask the right questions. And this is what Alcoholics Anonymous will do. So we're talking about men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. And then say you don't have a chance, does it? Even if you're of that variety, they're saying your chances are what? Less than average. What's average? 50-50? What are you, 60-40? 75-25? 85-15? You still got a chance if you're willing to look. There are those, too, who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. I used to think that sentence meant guys who weren't staying sober. What I've learned over the years, and you can come to my home group to verify this, everybody in AA has grave emotional and mental disorders in one area or another. <laughs> come to my home group, I'll show you a bunch of them, and they're staying sober and they're making it because they have the capacity to be honest. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. So if you've decided now that you're, you're uh, willing to go to any lengths to get sobriety, then you're ready to take certain steps. But you know what? Unfortunately, at least around Minneapolis, I don't know how it is down here, but we get a lot of people coming in too soon. They're not willing to go to any lengths. I'm willing that they go to any lengths, and Bob is willing. You know, we want them to do it, but they're not willing, see? The courts are sending them for whatever reason. They're just not willing. They're not even ready to take certain steps. And I'll tell you how you can weed them out. Sit down and read inventory to them, and you won't waste a lot of time at 3 in the morning having phone calls from them. You'll simply weed them right out, who is interested and who isn't. And it's okay. God bless them. You know, maybe they've got to get a bigger glass. You know what I mean? Yeah, the book pretty much says that. Yeah. The book doesn't say don't drink. The book says drink until you're convinced you want some help. So. At some of these we balked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. You know how the original manuscript was written? They wrote it this way originally, and they softened it up. We read it in our home group, so I'm aware of the, the original is in the back of these little red books, by the way. It says that some of these you may balk. You may think you can find an easier, softer way. We doubt if you can. You can see why they changed that, huh? <laughs> Drunks hate to be told anything. You know? We doubt if you can. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Pretty strong language, we beg of you. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. Kind of a funny sentence, isn't it? Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas. Is there anybody in this room who hasn't tried to hold on to some old idea? I mean, come on, it's crazy. Of course we do. Now, you know, so what is an old idea? You know, I, when I came into AA, I had ideas that I thought were good and ideas that I thought were bad. 
and then I would try and choose which I should hang on to. Well, this is exactly what I was doing before I got sober, see? And obviously I was confused about that. I ended up in Alcoholics Anonymous because I couldn't seem to figure out which to hang on to. You hang on to the good ideas and let go of the bad ones. Yeah. And one of the things I've realized is that what if we just challenged what we believe? What if in the next few hours that we're together, we examine what it is we believe? Not to judge ourselves over this stuff, but literally just find out what it is. You might be hanging on to some of the worst stuff. You can't lose the truth. If your old ideas are good, they'll still be true if you examine them. The worst that can happen is you'll lose your illusions of what you want to be true. And that can be devastating if you've been building a case against somebody for a long time. And that's what happened to me when I looked at inventory. It's, it was devastating when I saw how wrong I was in certain areas, but it was also very freeing at the same time. So if we can just challenge what we believe. All of it. All of it. Everything. Examine it. You won't lose the truth. Truth will still be true regardless. Remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. Here are the steps we took which are suggested as a program of recovery. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, <laughs> admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Many of us exclaimed, what an order, I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We are not saints. The point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Our description of the alcoholic? That's, that's the first three chapters in this book where they describe what an alcoholic is. That's our description of the alcoholic. The chapter to the agnostic? That's chapter four. Uh, it's written to the guy who doesn't believe or doesn't know if there's a God. The, the word agnostic comes from the root word gnosis, which means knowing. Agnostic means I don't know. Okay? Chapter 4 is designated to that person who's struggling with that. Read it. Take a look at it. It's just they're trying to open our minds up a little bit. Okay, We're making some assumptions when we're starting in Chapter 5 here. 
Okay. On, a lot of places will start out and go right through at the very beginning of the book and do workshops that way, but uh, for, because of time restraints, it's difficult to do. And our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. My life experiences up to this point. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. That's step one, isn't it? The same way as saying we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. That's step two. It's another way of saying we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. In fact, AA started on B when the doctors gave up on us. Literally, that was Dr. Silkworth giving up on Bill, and Roland Hazard was under Carl Jung's care in Switzerland a few years, a couple years earlier, and Carl Jung said the same thing to him that Bill Wilson got from Dr. Silkworth. I can't help you. And that's when Bill had his spiritual experience, was after getting that prognosis. And see that God could and would if he were sought. Step two and a half, right? <laughs> Being convinced we were at step three. Being convinced of A, B, and C, we were at step three which is that we decided to turn our will and our life over to God as we understood him. Just what do we mean by that, and just what do we do? Now they're going to talk about exactly what we mean by that and exactly what we do. Okay? So that's, what we're, that's the, the idea that's going to be on the table for the next probably three, four paragraphs, five paragraphs, is just what we mean by the third step. Now when I first read this, I thought, this is awful. I come in here as an atheist, a militant atheist. And I don't mean I was just sort of atheist. I'm out converting people. I'm dead serious. I'm mean-spirited. I'm in the bars. I'm hassling the, the Christian. Anybody who was Christian, I would just go crazy with. See, So this was not an easy thing for me to even consider. Very mean-spirited with this stuff. And I was not an atheist. But... When I first came to AA and I read this step off the wall, my first thought was, anybody share this? Anybody have the same experience? I looked at step three and I said, oh, no. No, I have to give up stuff. Can't have fun anymore. Oh, I have to go be good. That's what it looked like to me. I have to go be good. Don't you get that feeling when you look at it when it's written on the wall? Turn my will and life over to the care of God. Well, oh, if I'm my. Catholic, I can't have sex before marriage, right? If I turn my will and life over. Well, I'm serious. You know, isn't that the, the fear then? I don't, every time I go to church, I'm guilty, you know. So I just quit going to church. That's the way you solve that problem, and you do what you want. Not interested in God. i got to lose something for God. I really believe that. I'm telling you, this was a, not an easy position for me. Now, so, here's, here's the good news, because that's not what the third step looks like at all. When we read this out of the book, this, is, this doesn't look like I have to be good. I, I think you're going to like this. I love this. The first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. On that basis, we are almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. Okay, these are sentences, and I'm telling you, when I first started reading this book, I used to skip right over these sentences and not really look at it. I had kind of a clue of what it said, but I, you know, I was lazy intellectually, is what it really was. And I didn't want to think very deeply, so I just slide past this stuff. Listen to what they're talking about here. Now, the very first requirement of the third step 
is that I be convinced that my life run on self-will. What does self-will mean? I want what I want. I want things my way. Self-will can hardly be a success. Now, they're going to talk a lot about selfishness as we get into this, and you could just as easily use the term selfish whenever you read self-will in this book. That's what I've saw, I've seen over the years as I've looked at this. Okay? Well, I want to give you a dictionary definition of selfish. It's really important if you can understand what the words mean. Now, here's what Webster's Dictionary said selfish means. It said, concerned excessively or exclusively with oneself. Seeking or concentrating on one's own advantage, pleasure, or well-being without concern for others. The other definition was very similar, and it said without regard with others. Okay. So, by definition, then, I'm, I'm seeking or concentrating on my own advantage, pleasure, well-being, and in achieving that from life, I'm not concerned about how it affects other people. Now, you say, well, I'm not selfish. I care about other people. I didn't say I didn't care about other people. I cared about other people, too. I didn't even consider them. You understand the difference? It's not that I didn't care about people. I didn't even think about it. I, I just, I was out. Look, when you're concerned excessively or exclusively with yourself, you're not thinking about anybody else. You just want what you want. And in getting that, I ended up in conflict with people. That's a really important distinction. You could say to somebody, you know, your conduct is very selfish. You're hurting your family. Oh, my, I don't want to hurt my family. It's the last thing I want to do. I love my family. It's not that I don't care about my family. It's that I'm not thinking about anything except me because I'm concerned exclusively or excessively with me. I want it's what I want. I'm not thinking about anything else except what I want. So you're not bad if you're selfish. You're unaware is what it really is. You're just unaware of others. That's what a selfish guy is by definition in the dictionary. Okay? So if you think of this in those terms, the first requirement of the third step is that I be convinced that my life run on self-will or selfishly, same thing, can hardly be a success. Why? On that basis of living that way, we are almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. Okay, I had good motives. I'm trying to keep a roof over my kid's head. I'm trying to keep food on my family's table as I'm lying and stealing and cheating you guys. Did you like it when you come in contact with a guy like me? who's trying to manipulate you for his own outcome, who's trying to get what he wants, you know you're going to lose something when you come in contact with somebody like me. <laughs> you just know it. You may not even know what it is, but you just react kind of negatively to a guy like that, see? So what happens is, I can have the best motives in the world, but it brings me into collision or conflict with something or somebody. And it doesn't matter how good my motives are. You can have the best motives in the world, but I'm still in conflict. That's the problem. And in the next few paragraphs, they're going to give us an example of what this looks like, an actual example. And if when, as we're reading this, think of it in these terms. 
The next couple paragraphs are going to be a description of how the mind builds resentment or how it becomes angry when it's playing God and trying to direct things the way it wants things to go. See, see the next sentence says, most people try to live by self-propulsion. So the rest of society does this. It's not that we're so different from society in general. But why do I end up in a treatment center? Or why do I end up in jail cells? Or why, you know? Why do we end up in Alcoholics Anonymous? Yeah. You know what I, I've come to realize over the years? We do it with enthusiasm. <laughs> you understand? Don't you drink enthusiastically? You chase women, sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever it is. Don't you do it with enthusiasm? You don't get here without being enthusiastic. Okay? Now, if you're doing things that are hurting you enthusiastically, guess what? You're kicking your rear enthusiastically. Okay? You know what I've learned here in AA, the time I've been sober? I've learned how to not hurt myself. Seriously, that's all I've learned here, really. Everything else has been about unlearning. It hasn't been about learning. It's been about unlearning. And Chuck C. said it this way in a new pair of glasses in his book. He said, AA looked like this to him. He said, first you uncover, then you discover, then you discard. He talked of it as subtraction, not addition. You become aware of it. First you uncover it, then you discover it, then you let it go. That's the process of inventory. That's what Chuck said. And the, the book states it this way. We're clearing away the junk that blocks us from the sunlight of the Spirit. Yeah. We're getting rid of the stuff that's blocking yeah. us from the power greater than ourselves. Okay. Now, if I'm doing things with enthusiasm that are hurting me, if I can be shown what that is, why wouldn't a guy be interested in looking at that? See? But if I'm unaware of what I'm doing... Here, I'll give you an example. What you're aware of, you've got a chance of controlling, right? What you're not aware of is going to control me. What I'm not aware of will control me. So the key is to become aware of what's going on. It isn't always pleasant, but it's very freeing once you start to see this. So that's what, now they're going to give us this description and use an actor as an example. So most people try to live by self-propulsion. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in his own way. If his arrangements would only stay put, if only people would do as he wished, the show would be great. Everybody, including himself, would be pleased. Life would be wonderful. Isn't that what you think as you're trying to get what you want? Okay. Can't my coworkers see I know what's best? Can't my children see I know what's best? Can't my spouse see I know? If they just listened to me, everything would be okay, right? Just do it my way and it would work out great. Isn't that true? Isn't that what we think? Yeah. And you're pushing and shoving and trying to force ideas on the, and whatever it is. See, if they just do what I tell them, everything will be okay. That's what I think. Now, in trying to make these arrangements, our actor may sometimes be quite virtuous. He may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. As long as it's going the way I want it. Right? Yeah, as long as I'm getting what I want, I'll be kind, considerate, even be modest and self-sacrificing. I'll give a little. On the other hand, he may be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest. It's when it didn't work the other way. Right? Right? Didn't work being nice. 
I can fix that. Did you see the movie about Ike and Tina Turner <laughs> called What's Love Got to Do With It? Oh, if you haven't seen this, it's a wonderful movie. Uh, Ike Turner, in fact, he just died recently. Uh, he was a very talented musician. And in, an, in his own right, he really was. He, he wrote a lot of great, good music. He was a very talented player. When Tina showed up, it was dynamite. And they took off and went right into the limelight. It was just incredible. See, well, he knew that, and, and he was dependent, in a sense, on her singing. And, and, and Ike was really quite good to her as long as she played her role properly, see, and didn't cause too much of a fuss. He wanted to screw around with other women, and he was doing all this stuff. And finally, after years of this crap, Tina got sick of it, and she says, no more. I'm not doing it, see. Now he's afraid of losing her. So he starts to beat her up to keep her. Isn't that something? Scare you to stay with me. Hey, he was kind, considerate, patient, generous. He was even modest and self-sacrificing as long as she played her role properly. But when she said no more, he went berserk. And it was really something. The movie is tremendous. Title is perfect. What's love got to do with it? Nothing. Nothing. But, as with most humans, he is more likely to have varied traits. I won't be all one way or all the other. I'll have a little of each of these inside of me. I won't be playing it all one way. Does that make sense? Okay. What usually happens? The show doesn't come off very well. My life didn't come off very well. I ended up in Alcoholics Anonymous. I ended up in a treatment center. <laughs> he begins to think life doesn't treat him right. You ever felt that way? Life's just not treating me right. He decides to exert himself more. Going to push a little harder. He becomes, on the next occasion, still more demanding or gracious, as the case may be. Become more demanding to get what I want, or I'll become more gracious to get what I want. I'll buy her flowers this time. Oh, whatever it is. See. Still, the play does not suit him. Admitting he may be somewhat at fault, he is sure that other people are more to blame. I wish I had a buck for every time I had that thought. When I read that, I thought, man, this is perfect. I'm willing to admit I'm somewhat at fault, but I'm sure you're more to blame. Do you see how the anger starts? Are you, oh, yeah. He starts getting angry because he's not getting what he wants, see. He becomes angry, indignant, self-pitying. What is his basic trouble? Is he not really a self-seeker even when trying to be kind? I'm a self-seeker even when I'm trying to be kind. Isn't that a sad idea? And what about when I'm not trying to be kind? Yeah, what am I in my worst? <laughs> I mean, I'm a self-seeker. I'm seeking for myself. I want things. My, even when I'm kind, I'm like that. Wow. And one of the reasons that I, I tell the story about being a dry drunk for 23 years is because the, uh, the idea that getting what I want is where happiness comes from. The idea that happiness is having what I want was absolutely untrue in my life. It was, the opposite was true. I was miserable, and I had pretty much what I wanted, and I was miserable. So that didn't work. That, that's an illustration of exactly what idea. we're talking about here. Yeah, it's an old idea. Is he not a victim of the delusion that he can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if he only manages well? I'm a victim of my own delusion, as Bob was just referring to, that happiness is getting what I want. And I'm hell-bent on being happy, so I'm out manipulating outcomes. I want it my way, right? 
Is it not evident to all the rest of the players that these are the things he wants? And here comes the anger. And do not his actions make each of them wish to retaliate, snatching all they can get out of the show? Is he not, even in his best moments, a producer of confusion rather than harmony? Yeah, think about this. My actions, I'm selfish. My actions make others wish to retaliate because they know they're going to lose something when they come in contact with me. There's always this manipulation going on, see? So they try and snatch what they can get out of the situation. Now you've got two people trying to take from the same situation, and guess what? It's going to be crazy. It's always that way, see? Well, I'll tell you how this, this, this looks in a guy like my, my life. You know, I'm selfish. I want what I want. I'm just out in life trying to get what I want from life. Okay? I come in contact with you. You will react to that selfishness. Depending on how aggressive I am and how I handle things, but sooner or later you're going to start reacting to my selfishness. Then I look at you, since I'm totally unaware that I'm selfish, I look at your action toward me and I think, what a jerk. Look at the way they're treating me. Right? He's treating me bad. So then I got a story of how you're wronging me, right? So I go to Bob and I tell Bob the story in just the right way so he'll agree with me. You know how you do that? (laughs) You exaggerate certain points. You minimize other points till you get the story just right. You leave relevant information entirely out of the story. You understand, don't you? Sure. Till you get it just right so Bob will agree with me. We join in the grievance and hate the other person together. Have you seen this yet? Got it. Yeah. Very difficult. This is called self-delusion in the book. Very difficult to hate somebody on your own. You've got to get somebody to join with you. So you've got to tell the story. To... Well, really. don't we say in AA you can't keep it if you don't give it away? Well, what do you think? This doesn't work both ways. These are double-edged swords. You keep it by giving it away. The more you give the grievance away, the more you hang on to it. The more you try and make others guilty, the more you keep the guilt. You don't get rid of it by doing this. It's called projection. Okay. The psychological term for it would be, oh yeah, you try and project it out on others and the more you give it away, the more you hurt yourself with it. What an interesting idea, huh? So here it is, Uh, I'm, I'm living my life this way, people are reacting to me, I don't think they're reacting, I think they're attacking me, and guess what, all my anger is justified, and it's justified through the story I'm telling myself. You understand? You have to have a story of why you're angry, or you'd have to say... Justifiable anger. I'd have to say, I'm mad at you, but I don't have any reason to be. Of course you've got a reason. Your story is the reason. So I'm you know what? I'm angry, but I have no reason to be angry. What we're going to look at in inventory is the stories we're telling ourselves that justify our anger. Now, why would I do this? Because the anger is hurting me, not the guy I'm angry at. It's like looking at my dad, for example, and being angry at my childhood and saying something like this. Well, Dad, I see what a jerk you've been to me all my life, and I have this story of how you've wronged me. You know, I think I'm going to hold negative thoughts in my mind and hurt myself. (laughs) No, isn't that brilliant? 
Do you want to tell me how that's less insane than I'll thoroughly follow your path and fail just to prove you're wrong? How's that different? I'll show you I'll kill me. Brilliant. Just brilliant. And I'll drink over it. And I'll, this is the height of insanity. Height of insanity, right? But yet, you know, the alcoholic's uh, creed, my life sucks and it's all your fault. Yeah. You know. And I got the stories to prove it. It's got I got all, I'm filled with stories that justifies my grievances. This oh, is this, this is a very important idea talking about stories because a little later on when we start to write, we're gonna be writing down some stuff that we may delude ourselves into thinking is what really happened. We're telling ourselves stories. We're telling ourselves stories that justify why we're angry. So keep that idea in mind it'll, and it'll come up in a little while. Our actor is self-centered, egocentric, as people like to call it nowadays. Okay. I hear again, this paragraph I used to just slide past, kind of had an idea what it meant. Now they're going to show us illustrations of what self-centered, egocentric looks like. Okay? He is like the retired businessman who lolls in the Florida sunshine in the winter complaining of the sad state of the nation. Can you get a picture of that? He's down in Florida. He's a retired businessman. He's got a pretty good deal going. You know, it's nice and warm down there in the winter. But what's he doing? He's complaining of the sad state of the nation. What's he complaining about? He's got it pretty good. He thinks he knows what's best for others. He's going to tell everybody else. Isn't that something? The minister who sighs over the sins of the 20th century. Oh, look at what they're doing now. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. 20th century, right? Going to tell everybody how to live. Politicians and reformers who are sure all would be utopia if the rest of the world would only behave. Read the paper lately? Yeah. Self-centered, egocentric. The outlaw safecracker who thinks society has wronged him. He's cracking safes and justifying it by society's wronged me. This is an important idea because once you start to look at your mind, you'll start to see this is going on. And that you have to justify whatever your anger is. And you'll justify it through the story, see? He's cracking safe, saying, well, society's wronged me. I have every right to steal. Now, why do you have to tell yourself that story? Because your mind naturally wants to love. And to get it to do something that you know is wrong or hurtful, you have to tell yourself a story of why it's okay to do it. This is the way it is. It's just the way it is. You have to make it reasonable somehow to justify your attacks. It's just the way it is. And the alcoholic was lost all and is locked up. Whatever our protestations, are not most of us concerned with ourselves, our resentments, or our self-pity? So whatever I'm protesting about during the course of my day, just start to examine yourself this way. It'll astonish you when you start to look at it. What do I protest about? Are not most of us concerned with ourselves, our resentments, or our self-pity? Hey, if I'm a Republican, I'm interested in laws that are passed that will benefit me and my interests. If I'm a Democrat, I want laws that are passed that will benefit me and my interests. It doesn't matter which side you're on. That's irrelevant. The fact of the matter is I'm self-centered and I'm egocentric and I want things the way I say they should be and I get angry when it doesn't go the way I want it. Oh, I had to look at my politics a while back. 
and I saw just how rageful I was. I'd spent most of my life just angry about stuff. I had, I, about eight years ago, I started examining that, and I didn't think I was going to have a transformative experience like I had early on with inventory. Well, I did around this one. It altered me, and I've got to tell you, I've never been the same since. So it, it, a lot of the judgments had to drop. It was amazing. It was just that for very freeing. See? So whatever I'm protesting about, I'm concerned about myself. You can hide that one, too, because I may be concerned, and in fact, I am concerned about other people and the welfare of other people. Sure. But if there's an element of I'm concerned about helping you because I know what's best for you, I know how your life should be run, I know the decisions that you should be making, that's selfish. You might even be right and very wrong at the same time. You can be right. You know how you do it? You can be very right about a situation, and it's in the way you do it. You're very wrong. I've done that most of my life. Still do on occasion with things. I might be right, but I'm a big pain. So, listen to this. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles. What happened to alcohol? What happened to drugs? You mean alcohol's not the root of my troubles? Drugs aren't the... No, no, selfishness is. Really, yeah, selfish. That's what it says. Yeah, the founders of a group called Alcoholics Anonymous wrote a book called Alcoholics Anonymous, and they just wrote selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Is that what's been going on in my life? I've been driven by a hundred forms of fear. What am I afraid of? I'm afraid I won't get what I want. I'm selfish. I want what I want. I'm afraid I'll lose what I got. I'm selfish. I'm trying to hang on and possess people in relationships and things like that. See, afraid of losing what I got, afraid of not getting what I want. I'm driven by a hundred forms of those, of fear, those two things. Then it says self-delusion. I lie to myself or I distort the facts. Self-seeking, I'm only concerned about Rick. And self-pity, I feel sorry for myself when I don't get what I want. What happens? We step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. There's the formula for how to fail in relationships. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation. Heavy on the seemingly, by the way. But we invariably find that at some time in the past, we have made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. I can give you an example of that, because that's another one of those sentences that used to really bother me. I couldn't quite get my mind around it. I'll tell you an example from, uh, I realize this is Alcoholics Anonymous, but I want to tell you a story of something that happened to me with drugs, because it was an important thing, and it was about money, really. A some, guy, some of us have outside issues. Too, yeah, so well, it, it isn't the issue. It, it's, it's how I manifested, it, and it's a good example of this. I, a guy had given me some, or sold me some very good crystal methamphetamines, okay? I wanted some more because I could cut this 100% and sell it on the streets, and it was better than anything you could get. So I, I bait somebody with a little bit of it, see, give them a little taste, buddy or something, and then I, he comes back to buy some, and it's a different product. And I lie to him and tell him it's the same. And, of course, you've got a conflict now because you're selfish, see? Well, literally, uh, 
I, I, I sold all that. He, he wasn't arguing because it was still better than anything you get, see? So now I want more because I'm selfish. I want more. I can make money on this thing. So I contact this guy again through somebody else. I had to go through somebody. So he shows up. He says, yeah, I'll get you some more. Give me 500 bucks. And I never saw him again. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation. Now, it seems like I had nothing to do with that, right? But we invariably find, now they're talking about inventory, when you, when you inventory this, we invariably find that at some time in the past, I made decisions based on self, which later placed me in a position to be hurt. I made a decision out of my selfishness, okay? I gave a dope fiend $500 that I didn't know. Who are you angry at when you do that? Yourself, for being such a fool for what you did, see? Now, I'm angry at him, and I pour energy into hating him for the very stupid thing that I did. Who are you hating? Yourself. Who are you going to forgive then? Yourself, when you see it differently. What I saw from that situation is I put myself in a position to be hurt out of my selfishness. Does that say that it was okay what he did? Not at all. He was wrong. But it never could have happened had I not made a decision out of my own selfishness, out of self, which later placed me in a position to be hurt. So that's an example of that sentence and what they're talking about here and what you'll see as you inventory yourself. You'll start to see all kinds of things that will change how you view things. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. That's what I found. They arise out of ourselves, and the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. I'm an enthusiastic example of self-will run riot. I want what I want. I'm trying to push and direct people and get what I want from life. And guess what? You end up angry, and you end up resentful. You ever see a two-year-old that just wants what he wants, and he wants it right now, and if he doesn't get it, he's going to have a tantrum and make everybody miserable? Boy, I tell you, I'm doing that in my 30s, and that's really ugly. <laughs> you know, and 30s. I got a driver's license. Yeah, well, 40s, 50s, whatever. 60s, whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. now, not so much in the 60s. I kind of, kind of tapered down a little bit the last few years. So not quite so bad. Listen to this line now. This is amazing. Above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness. We must or it kills us. God makes that possible. Above everything, if you're fighting the booze, it doesn't do any good. You've got to look at this. Now remember, this is the experience of the people who wrote this book, the people who founded Alcoholics Anonymous. This is what they're telling us. Above everything, we've got to get rid of this selfishness. There often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. Without God's help. God makes that possible. Many of us had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them even though we would have liked to. Yeah. I heard somebody from the podium, this must have been 18, 20 years ago, she said something that I, that I knew it was ridiculous when I heard it. She said, alcoholics don't have any moralities. Not true with me. I had tremendous moralities. And if you didn't live up to them, <laughs> see, I wasn't living on myself. 
but it didn't mean I didn't have moralities. I go to the prisons on a regular basis, twice a month. I sit in the jails, in the prisons, with lifers who've been in there for their life and never are going to get out, some of them, in the AA meetings. And I'm telling you, some of the guys who are new in there have tremendous judgments about certain things. And if a guy comes in there with the wrong crime, they'll kill him. They'll literally kill him. It's not that they don't have moralities. They're tremendously judgmental about things. So I had, I had all kinds of, of morals and convictions, but I wasn't living up to them. But boy, I would hammer on you if you didn't. Neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own power. We had to have God's help. Now that's bad news to an atheist. <laughs> I mean, it really is. I, I, how do you work this stuff if you're an atheist? Well, I'm telling you, I made a decision. I was three weeks sober, and I was lying in a treatment center, and I said something I'd never said. I was 35 years old. I had lost my family. I'd been fixing things. I was fixing my relationship with Pam, and she took the kids and left. I was fixing my finances, and I lost the business that I had. I'd been moving it around town. I finally had to auction it off because I couldn't deal with it. I was fixing my other financial problems, and I lost the house we were living in and lost some other properties. Every time I fixed something, it got worse. It didn't get better. You start to become afraid of yourself when you have an experience like that. And I'm telling you, it wasn't pleasant, see. So I'm lying in a treatment center, and I had just spent two and a half days hiding in the ceiling of the Social Security office from the police because I was burglarizing it. And the cops came, and I hid from them. And I had gotten out of there without going to jail, and I was in a treatment center because I knew if I didn't get off the streets, I was going to prison for a long time. And I'm lying in bed thinking about all these things, and I've been going through withdrawals and all the trouble, and I finally said something that I'd never said before. I said, I'll do anything not to live like this. Anything. And I wasn't just talking about booze. I was talking about the whole lifestyle that was around me at the time whether it was stealing, whatever it was. I, I can't stand my life. I'll do anything. As soon as I said that, I had a significant experience. I, in fact, I started feeling these rushes running through my body from head to toe. It was just like somebody plugged me in a light socket. And it was from the top of my head right through me, waves of electricity running through me. This sense of peace comes over me like I'd never experienced before with a sense of knowing that everything would be okay if I just stuck to the commitment I just made, meaning I'll do anything. Two words come in my head. I'm a militant atheist. And I get this. Jesus Christ. And it shocked me. And I went, whoa, no. I got all kinds of judgments against people who use terms like this. I'm so rebellious. I said, no, I can't handle it. And the experience ended when I did that. But I knew something happened to me that day. It didn't convert me. I was still an atheist. In fact, I entered into a commitment with God, and I didn't even believe in God. But I made the commitment, see. You know, you guys who believe know that belief comes and goes. But that commitment has carried me when I didn't believe and I've never lost that commitment. That's still in force. And that happened over 20 years ago. So, here it is. I've never had trouble staying sober since I made that commitment. The compulsion to use was shut off like a switch and it's never come back. 
But I came into Alcoholics Anonymous with all kinds of negative old ideas, rebellious against God. That didn't convert me. It took me a few months before that changed. And I'll tell you how an atheist came to believe, this atheist. I took actions I didn't believe in, and I got results I couldn't deny. I did inventory. I came to believe after I did inventory, not before. It's very difficult to find an experience of a power or of love when you got a head full of hate. I had to get the anger out of the way first for me. This is my experience. But it didn't mean I couldn't apply these ideas. So what happened is the anything started showing up in opportunities to help out. Go to a detox, go to a treatment center, go to a prison. I just started doing what Bob's sponsor did him. Brings them over to the workhouse, takes them around. We, I started doing things. Not because I was trying to be good or I was trying to work a program. Because it made me feel better. I wasn't thinking about myself when I was out putting meetings on with others. And I saw the value in helping others. And I've never lost that. Because I saw the value in it. Not in booze or drugs or whatever. I saw the value in trying to help somebody else. What was I doing? AA says the problem is selfishness, right? That's what they're saying. I don't know how you can miss that now. We've read through it. If the problem is selfishness, my need to take from life, get what I want, what would be the opposite? Wouldn't it be selflessness or helpfulness? The decision to be helpful. What if I actually, and I believe me, I did this. I'm going to be helpful. Not because I was trying to be good, because I, I felt better when I was doing it. Nothing noble about this. Pure self-interest. wasn't selfish because it wasn't without concern or regard for others. But it was self-interest. Well, I started doing that, and I'm telling you, what we're going to read in the next couple paragraphs happened to me, and I didn't believe in God. That came later. It literally, I had this experience as an atheist. So this is the how and why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Next, we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. He is the principal, we are his agents. He is the father and we are his children. Most good ideas are simple, and this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we passed to freedom. Now, I didn't feel that, but I did make a decision. I didn't want what my mind was telling me, and I knew I couldn't solve my own problems. I kind of turned it over to fate, if you can understand that. It, somehow that made some sense to me under the circumstances. Then this next paragraph is exactly what happened to me, and I didn't believe in God. When we sincerely took such a position... All sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Circumstances and problems in my life started to unfold in ways I never could have imagined the, the solution coming from. In other words, I'm trying to get this job and a better job happened that I never could have considered. I needed a car, and a woman called me up. I smashed my car up. I was sober just a few months. A woman that I knew from, from years ago called me up. She's a friend of mine. I just 
been reunited with her in the program. We weren't dating her, and just a friend. And she says, I got a car that I can't afford to keep, and I, I'll, I'll sell it to you on payments. I couldn't get credit. My credit was ruined. So I paid 100 bucks a month for a car. I, I was hoping for a $500 car. I got a $2,500 car. I didn't expect that. Solutions to problems started to unfold in ways I never could have imagined the solution coming from. I didn't think I was doing God's will. That's ridiculous. I didn't believe in God. I was just out trying to help and put on meetings and doing things like that. And it started to happen for me. Trying to give instead of trying to take. Reverse the selfishness. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. That's a break, by the way, because oh. depression is being interested in yourself and your little plans and designs. If you don't believe that, go think about yourself for an hour after this session and let me know how you feel. There's nothing more depressing than thinking about yourself. Yeah. More and more we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. What can I give to life? As we felt new power flow in. I did. As we enjoyed peace of mind. I felt that. As we discovered we could face life successfully. That started happening to me. As we became conscious of his presence. That didn't. <laughs> Yet, anyway. We began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. That's an actual experience of what happened to me. And as these experiences happened, the roots of my atheist beliefs started to drop off. Because when you're an atheist like I was, when good things happened, I took the credit. When bad things happened, I gave you the credit. You understand? That's the way this atheist operated. There was no God, it was just me, see? And here, now, solutions are happening in ways I didn't even consider the solution coming from. It becomes increasingly difficult to stay an atheist when you start having these experiences. So I'm going to repeat what Rick said, because this phrase was extremely powerful to me. He said he took action he didn't believe in. He got results he couldn't deny. Couldn't explain the results away. Who did it? Where did it come from? Who cares? Who cares? I, that's what, you know what happened? I never found a concept of God. In fact, the more I tried to get a concept of God, the worse it got. What I found was experiences and the need for the concept went away. I don't know what God is. You know what, it, today, I don't care anymore. I used to think I needed a concept. I don't care. It doesn't matter. I know there is. I know there is today. Yeah, I always felt that if I could understand God, I would just fix it all myself. That's what I was doing. And see, I got to a bottom because every time I fixed it, it got worse. <laughs> we were now at step three. Many of us said to our maker as we understood him. Now, Bob, we're going to take the these and those out of this, not to be irreverent, but literally to get to the meaning a little bit. Think of this prayer now in terms of reversing the selfishness and see if that isn't what it's saying. God, I offer myself to you to build with me and to do with me as you will. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do your will. 
Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of your power, your love, and your way of life. May I do your will always. We thought well before taking this step, making sure we were ready to ourselves utterly to him. Now think about what this says. It says, relieve me of the bondage of self, selfishness, my need to take from life. Why? That I may better do love's will. You understand? Love gives, it doesn't take. If I'm taking, I'm out of harmony with love or God. Okay? That's the way I see it today. Take away my difficulties. For my sake, no. That victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of God's power, God's love, God's way of life. Not Rick's power, Rick's love. Don't take the credit, see? The credit goes to God, not me. Jesus never took the credit, if you read about him. He always gave the credit to God. Whenever he healed somebody, somebody says, how'd you do that? He, he doesn't say, well, I adjusted him here. and I adjusted. <laughs> he says, God did it. I don't, why do you call me good? That sort of thing. It's all over the New Testament. Why did he do that? He wasn't going to build a big ego about it. He knew, he knew where the power was coming from. He had enough sense to not take the credit. Not me. I want the credit. Oh, boy. But what is it saying? I mean, it's take away my difficulties so I can show others this works, right? That victory over... This is what old-timers did for me in AA. I walked into one of my early AA meetings at 2218. All these guys were 20, 30-year guys. There was about, oh, eight of them in the room, ten of them. As it was, it wasn't funny. I'm telling you, it was tragic what had been happening to me. I lost everything that I valued, and it was devastating. And I'm sitting in that room, and I'm listening to these older men talk, and they all got long-term sobriety. They're talking and laughing about the things that are killing me, and there's nothing funny about it to me. And I'm listening to them, and I'm thinking, how did you get from where I am to where you are? And i got to tell you, they were literally demonstrating the third step prayer. God had taken away their difficulties and victory over them. They were bearing witness to me that it could happen for me. They were demonstrating it right in front of my face. And I thought, I want what they got in the worst way. I will do what they did. I'll listen. I'll read this book. I'll do what it says. And that's what I did. And it induced my own experience. Amazing. It is amazing. This prayer is literally saying, God, help me to be helpful, isn't it? Isn't the idea behind the prayer? What if I made a decision as an atheist? I said, you know, I, this sounds reasonable. I'm going to make a decision to help out. I'm going to go put meetings on at the prison. I'm going to go to the treatment center. I'm going to help out. Wouldn't you be working the third step if the idea is to be helpful? If love gives, wouldn't you be in harmony with God? Wouldn't it, would it matter what you believed at that point? As a bare beginning of this? Of course you can go deeper with this. I'm not saying that this is the best we got with it. But I am saying that you can do this regardless of what you believe if you'll make a decision to help. And I think you're in I didn't realize it at the time, but I started to feel better immediately. Why? Because I was giving instead of taking. I heard it all my life. What goes around comes around. What you sow, you reap. In other words, what you give, you'll receive. You know what I saw after I was sober a little bit? I took and took and took until I had nothing left. Wow, you'd think you'd have something, wouldn't you? 
When I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous, I had no family, I had no money, I had no house, I had no business, I had nothing. My friends were gone, everybody was gone. That's the bad result from selfishness. You gain by giving. Reverse the selfishness and you'll see it. Start to practice it. Do it. It's like a friend of mine said, it's Nike, not Nietzsche. Just do it. You don't have to philosophize about it. Take the action. See what happens. See? So, uh, do you want to say anything before we... Well, let me read the next paragraph. Okay. It says, read we next. found then it... we'll close this and get on, take a break. Yeah. We found it very desirable to take this spiritual step with an understanding person, such as our wife, best friend, or spiritual advisor. But it is better to meet God alone than with one who might misunderstand. Yeah, if you go back to your families, you say, you know, I've made a decision now. I'm going to turn my will and life over to God and help people. And They're going to look at you and say, you are nuts now. In fact, your AA friends will say it to you. You're going a little too far now. You know why? Because it's a contrast to what they're doing, see. You know, and they don't want to see that, see. Yeah, you've got to get a job or go to yeah, school. you got to make some money. Just shut up about it and do it. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> if, if you're trying to be helpful and if you're trying to give instead of take, people will notice it soon enough. And, uh, It'll be and obvious. The contrast is tremendous. The wording was, of course, quite optional, so long as we expressed the idea, voicing it without reservation. Yeah. God, help me to be helpful. Take away my difficulties so I can show others this works. That's optional, huh? You're usually a little more optional than any. Yeah, well, I'm being recorded. <laughs> <laughs> this was only a beginning, though if honestly and humbly made an effect, sometimes a very great one was felt at once. That's right. That's exactly what happened to me. And then I took inventory. And we're going to get into that. We'll come back after the break. What do we, how long do we want to take here? About 10 minutes. Would that be okay? Sure. 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 Is that okay? Come back and we'll show you how to write this. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.